If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, Green Dreamer, I just wanted to give you a heads up that we'll be taking a brief summer hiatus after reaching episode 260. To be honest, I'm personally a little burnt out, so as much as I need to evaluate the show's practical next steps, I also need a mini break for my own mental health. So we'll be taking a pause from releasing new conversations until the fall, but I will be replaying some past episodes throughout this break that I feel like are really relevant to this time or that are just really worth diving into because there's so many past conversations that I learn more from each and every time I listen again and again. Also, we do already have hundreds of conversations in the archive, so if you're not entirely caught up or haven't had a chance to go back to listen to some of our earlier episodes, I hope you'll take this brief pause as an opportunity to do that as well. And as we look ahead, I really want to thank our patrons for pulling together and helping us meet our August Patreon goal within days of me putting out a call for support on social media. So you know who you are. Thank you so much for believing in Green Dreamer and valuing our work tangibly in a way that is really helpful to keeping this platform alive. If you're not yet a patron and you've listened to more than a few episodes and you're not struggling financially, of course, I'd love to have your direct support as well if you're able, starting at just a tip of $2 to help us continue building building up this community supported platform. And the link to our Patreon is greendreamer.com slash support. This is of course linked in all of our show notes and at our website as well. But anyway, I just appreciate you a lot for taking time to tune in again and again to learn, deepen and broaden your knowledge and perspectives on intersectional sustainability and regeneration. So let's keep it going and growing together. And I think this is probably the single most important psychological insight is that humans evaluate risk socially, not rationally, right? So is there a danger? Is there a risk? We look to each other. So the insight is, the important thing is that merely by living your life, as normal and not joining 
the climate emergency movement and not talking about climate change just by living your life as normal, you are actually contributing to this phenomenon of pluralistic ignorance. That was Margaret Klein-Salomon, a clinical psychologist turned climate warrior, founder of The Climate Mobilization, and author of Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. We previously had The Climate Mobilization's other co-founder, Ezra Silk, on the podcast. That was back in episode 218. But I'm really looking forward to having you tune into this conversation that's more so centered on the psychology of for example, our mass inaction on climate change or mass mobilization. I'm always really interested in learning about our tendencies to behave in certain ways just from how we've evolved as human beings and how we're wired. So we talk about some of these psychological phenomena that explain why our public response to climate change hasn't really reflected the urgency that it warrants, why the environmental movement's fear of making the general public feel fear when it comes to telling the truth about our ecological breakdown has been misguided, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I came from a psychological family. My mom has a master's in psychology and is a kindergarten teacher, and my father is a psychoanalyst, so also a clinical psychology PhD. And just growing up, all of our friends were clinical, you know, for clinical psychology families. It was is just very much a a worldview and a community. So I, I've been I was around psychology like that. And then I was in psychotherapy for many, many years, more than 15 years. And especially when I was a teenager and a college student, I was really had some serious struggles and whatever trauma. And I found psychotherapy to be like, you know, to be my, let's say, saving grace. I feel I, like it's horrible to think where I would be now if not for what therapy offered me, the, mm. the comfort and healing. And so, so I thought, I just thought, how, what is, what is this magic? I mean, this is absolutely wonderful. I want to learn this. I want to learn, I want to have this ability to like heal people through talking and so, yeah, so I went to New York City to get my PhD um, at Adelphi University, and I was living here from around 2010 to 2014. That was my, when I was getting my PhD, and I, I just was getting more and more horrified about the climate. I, I mean, I could, Hurricane Sandy happened, Hurricane Irene happened, but also, of course, what I was seeing in the news and becoming more and more able psychologically to process and deal with. And also, I mean, just what I could, what I could experience with my own senses is like sun, suddenly rain started falling in these huge bursts 
rather than kind of like a gentle rain. And this is, you know, I, I experienced it, I observed it, and then I seen, I saw that it was backed up by science, that the Northeast is having the greatest increase in sudden rainfall. So yeah, I, I just, I, I loved being a psychologist. I really kind of fit in there and um, it's a great career path, but I just got too freaked out. I mean, I helping one per helping people is great, but kind of like, how does it, what does it matter if, you know, civilization collapses, you know, they're, they're feeling a bit better until, you know, they don't have food anymore or, or stable society or like, so, yeah. So I think, as you said, yes, it, it really, for me comes from my love of people and desire to help and help help them grow and and heal and and just seeing climate as the ultimate ultimate challenge to that. So we've had past guests talk about their angles on why it's been so difficult for us to come together and realize the changes that we need for a collectively healthier future, ranging from skewed media narratives to policy to corporate denial to our economic system. But what are some known psychological phenomena that might explain our collective resistance to change and our normalized inaction? Yeah, thank you so much. And of course, everything everything that you listed are are totally true. the The psychological lens is is just that it's a it's a lens to layer on top of our other kind of understanding, such as the you know corrupt political system and um, yeah, fossil fuel companies launching a you know multi billion dollar campaign of lies and propaganda and lobbying. So, so with that, with that caveat, yeah, I think the psychology is hugely important and that there's just absolutely critical factors going on psychologically, individually, and in like group process that are huge. And through understanding them, we can really see some avenues for change more clearly. And so what is going on? Okay. Number one, our minds try to protect us from painful and overwhelming information. That's, that's just what they do. So, so the idea of wanting to minimize or avoid or not look at something, I mean, sure. I mean, who, right? Like who wouldn't want to do that? I, you know, part of me, not, not, not the main part, but part of me wishes I could forget all this and go back to, ignorance, not, not knowing about it, but it's, um, so, so yeah, so first of all, it's understandable for people to not want to know, not want to really face it, but it's also socially constructed. And I think this is probably the single most important psychological insight is that humans evaluate risk socially, Mm -hmm. not rationally, right? So is there a danger? Is there a risk? We look to each other. So like if somebody's passed out or if somebody's lying, you know, face down on the sidewalk or something, do you know, should we call 911? Should we try to administer CPR or are they 
whatever nappings, whatever sleeping one off. It's it's really hard. So so in in if you're in that kind of situation, having a medical emergency, you are much better off, more likely to receive care if there's fewer people around. Just just a few people would be great because in a situation where there's a crowd, everyone, it's called pluralistic ignorance. Everyone looks to each other to see how to evaluate this situation. So they say, well, that person's acting normal and he's acting normal and she's acting normal and they're acting normal. So it must be fine, right? I'm not going to be the one person to act like this is some problem when everyone else is acting like it's normal. And another way that we see this effect is in the psychology lab, if the room is slowly filling up with smoke, but everyone is sitting there acting normal, not seeing the smoke, participants will just sit there as the, as the room fills up, because that's, I mean, again, we just, that's just how we evaluate risk. So with the climate, people are looking around and saying, I read that really intense article, but you know, my brother's acting normal, my cousin's acting normal, my neighbor's acting normal, my friends are acting normal, and, you know, and planning their lives and planning their careers and planning their families, and my mom's planning for retirement, and this person's planning their vacation for after coronavirus, and all this, you know, just normal, right? Just normal stuff. And so the insight is, the important thing is, that merely by living your life as normal and not joining the climate emergency movement and not talking about climate change, just by living your life as normal, you are actually contributing to this phenomenon of pluralistic ignorance because it's living your life as normal is signal is sending the signal to everyone in your life that things are fine and things are not fine. And we need to talk about it with each other, starting, starting with the, you know, our, our, our friends and family, the people who we can influence the most. And when you do that, it doesn't, it's not a science presentation. You know, you don't need to give them a PowerPoint. You can talk from a personal level. What, what do you feel about the climate emergency and the sixth mass extinction of species? What do you think the future holds? And how do you feel about that? And ask them, ask them how they feel and how it's affecting their lives and, and how they think about the future. So, so yeah, that we can kind of, we can burst this bubble of denial, this, that, that is co-constructed by our whole society acting normal, we can burst it through those kinds of conversations, as well as, of course, uh, aggressive organizing, mm. like the Extinction Rebellion and Sunrise Movement and the Youth Strikers. So I guess it might be really important, actually, for us to understand how we're innately wired as humans, so we can kind of see past that and consciously take action to work against this normalcy that we've been co-creating. Yes, absolutely. Another, another part of this that I think is really worth calling out is 
the misunderstanding that the climate movement has had for decades around the role of fear. There is a widespread fear of fear mm-hmm. within the climate movement. You you hear it all the time. I'm sure you've heard it all the time. You know, don't scare people. <laughs> yeah, fear doesn't work as a motivator. Don't scare people. They can't handle it. Keep it positive. Right? I just I just hate it. I I just I, honestly I think it's some of the worst ideas in the world because fear is a self-protective mechanism. It is literally the way that humans and other animals translate the perception of a risk into self-protective action. Right? If our ancestors didn't feel fear, then they wouldn't have escaped from predators and other threats. They would have seen, you know, a, a lion or whatever approaching and just, you know, done nothing, no, noticed. But since they didn't have fear triggering a reaction of, you know, oh shit, I gotta do something, I'm in danger. That yeah, that's it's so it's critically important. It is a critically important emotion. And the idea that somehow it doesn't belong or it's inappropriate or, yeah, people can't handle it is just so anti-psychological and, yeah, just fundamentally (laughs) strategically flawed. And what what do you do if you start from the assumption that people can't handle the truth or, excuse me, they can't handle being afraid, but the truth is inherently terrifying? Mm. You, you don't tell the whole truth. Right. You tell them, you tell them a version of it. You tell them a, you know, a hopeful story. So it's don't scare people. Unfortunately, in the climate realm means don't tell them the truth. I mean, actually, perhaps it, that's what it means. I mean, in Corona with coronavirus, if we said, oh, no, we can't we can't publish that scientific report. It's too scary. It's like, no, we need the right information, including its implications, in order to to feel fear, which is appropriate, right? And and let people use it to use that scary reality to to motivate systemic change. I feel like we have a culture that encourages us to put aside our negative emotions, when in reality, all of those negative emotions are functional and. We can really take cue from those negative emotions to guide our behaviors and our actions. Absolutely. I, I mean, the idea of, oh, this feeling is bad and therefore I shouldn't feel it or other people shouldn't feel it, is it's just not a good approach to anything, right? That's psychologists know, meditation teachers know that if you welcome your feelings, if you allow yourself to experience them, talk about them, think about them, learn about them, that 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 is by far the healthiest approach to handling one's feelings. And, And many psychopathologies are a direct result of not doing that. If, if you decide that, yeah, fear or anger or 
whatever is like, oh, no, 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 I can't feel that way. Jealousy, whatever. I can't feel that way. That would make me a bad person. I can't. I, I, I can't. Therefore, I don't. Like that's it's it's yeah, it's just not good for you. I don't have the exact numbers, but we know that our collective rates of suicide, youth suicide, depression, and anxiety are all on the rise. And certainly every case is unique, so I don't want to generalize. But might the overarching conditions that we exist in today, like the degrading state of our environment, increasing human-driven scarcity of resources, overconsumption, and increasing economic inequity, might these situational factors help to erode our baseline levels of mental health, which might then make us more vulnerable to any other personal stressors that we face on a daily basis. Absolutely. I mean, and especially it's not just the harsh realities that we face, though that is its own challenge, but it's the state of cognitive dissonance, right? Like, for example, young people feeling betrayed, possibly sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, but by their parents' generation, like, how, how are you just letting this happen? How is this, whatever, like, the world that we're inheriting? So, yeah, that, that kind of unspoken, unacknowledged anger, the often unspoken and unacknowledged grief that people feel for the world and for their own futures these kind of like unresolved emotional conflicts are like open wounds. And until we address them, I mean, of course, of course they exacerbate every other problem in our life. They're like the backdrop of our life. The cemetery So you wrote an article saying that we can mobilize for climate change the same way we've mobilized for this coronavirus pandemic in emergency mode. How do we know that we are in emergency mode right now? As in, what are what are some signs of that that you looked for? Yeah, we're not we're not fully there because the federal government is so incompetent (laughs) and callous that. It's not, I mean, it's not functioning as it should, but there's many, many institutions that are in emergency mode and much of the public is, though not all of it. But so what we do see are wall-to-wall headlines in the media, right? Huge coverage in the media. And that feels appropriate. And yet we're like the climate emergency threatens so many more people. And where is that coverage? Oh, it's on the science section. So, yeah, media coverage is huge. Um, Institutions, other than the government, taking this seriously. I mean, state and local governments in many areas have been doing a great job. But like universities closing, offices closing and saying work from home, you know, these everyone, every institution, every leader, every government, every country, everyone 
is responding to this in some way. No, nobody is going on with life as usual. They would be they would be hated for just pretending that this wasn't happening because this is an emergency. And so, yeah, all all of that, all of that can be applied to the climate there. And, and there's more. I mean, huge economic changes. Right. Suddenly, Congress has trillions of dollars to spend. Right. That 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 because of the emergency. OK, we're going to do it. And, it. and it happened fast. Suddenly we can uh, shut down non-essential parts of the economy. Who knew? And and we're doing that in order to protect life. That that honestly, to me, is the fundamental takeaway from the coronavirus situation. And I'm so relieved to see it is that. Fundamentally, our society. Again, not everyone, but. I think the vast majority of our society values life, human life, and and I think other life as well. And this is a relief because it, when you're in the climate space long enough, it feels like we really don't. And yeah, life is more important than the economy and the government's role is to protect life even when taking drastic measures. Those to me are the lessons of the coronavirus, as well as the fact that we can move really, really fast once we realize something is an emergency. So I think in many ways, the public is getting an education about some of the, some of the available possibilities uh, for dealing with the climate emergency, which is also accelerating at an exponential rate like the coronavirus. And so the public is also getting an education in what exponential acceleration means. Now, do you feel like we've been able to have some of these positive reactions and positive responses because something like a virus infection is way less politicized than climate change, which does have a lot of vested interests blocking progress to maintain this status quo? The coronavirus happened quickly, so the um, propaganda networks are just catching up, mm. but they are doing so. I mean, the Coke brothers, vertically integrated policy, lobbying, and grass grassroots, you know, AstroTurf and um, media, uh, all, that, that whole operation is now telling people that responding to coronavirus is um, authoritarian and that they should resist. So they are up to their old death-loving tricks but yeah they just haven't had time whereas whereas on the the climate the propaganda ca campaign has been active for more than 30 years and it's it's just worked it's worked so well and it's part of you know it's it combines with the group psychology that i was discussing because because it's not that the right that the Koch brothers have convinced so many people of their position, right? The majority of the country is very worried about climate, not worried enough, but they're starting to get there. But by creating a minority 
of Americans who are basically conspiracy theorists. Uh, you know, the scientists are lying. It's, uh, you know, it's not the scientific consensus is, you know, whatever. It's George Soros or something. I mean, I've had members of my family, my extended family, say this stuff to me, say that, yeah, the scientists are just in it for the for the funding, mm-hmm. which is a, such, a, such a sad and um, paranoid thought. But but it's but it's worked. And by creating a relatively small portion of the United States that holds those views, it it puts climate into the realm of political and controversial, controversial, and, you know, not something to bring up at a dinner party, and someone might feel awkward. And yeah, so that's that they've been incredibly successful, stifling the open discourse that we should be having around the climate emergency. And I understand our need to go into emergency mode at a societal level. I'm wondering at a personal level, how do we deal with our body's physiological responses to emergencies being dragged out for weeks, months, and years? Because typically in catastrophic situations like earthquakes, fires, floods, we're kicked into fight or flight mode, our hearts race, we get adrenaline rushes. Is it possible at a personal level for us to be in this emergency state over weeks and months without it causing harm to our health? Or do you think this emergency mode is more so about our collective consciousness, but that individuals should approach this in a different way to be able to, you know, keep us going for the long haul? Yeah, great question. Emergency mode does happen at both the individual and group level uh, from small groups ranging up to the whole country and potentially the whole world as we're kind of seeing with coronavirus. And it can happen for as short a time as, you know, a few moments. Oh my God, the child is falling, you know, grab, catch them Mm. or the house is on fire, put it out Two years, right? Like a war. Or for individuals, you know, poverty is a long, can be a long emergency or cancer. So it's not, it is not unknown to the human experience to deal with an emergency over the course of years. Mm -hmm. And it is different. It sure is different. You can't maintain that level of pure focus like you do when the house is on fire or, you know, the baby's falling or whatever, but rather it's about going into spending more and more time in that state. Um, because, okay, the thing about emergency mode is you need to find a way to effectively engage. If you feel like there's nothing you can do, which is how most people feel about the climate emergency, then there's no point, right? Why why feel all those feelings? Why feel grief and anger and terror and everything, you know, if there's if there's nothing that I can do anyway? Why, yeah, why try? Why feel it and why try? And so we need the movement, the climate emergency movement needs to offer people, and it and it is in a pretty good place now with this, though it but but it needs to offer people effective ways to engage 
And we've gotten pretty confused about what that means for climate. I mean, it's still, the discourse is still dominated by personal consumption choices, right? Worried about the climate, get an electric car, get solar panels, get a different kind of washing machine, whatever. It's, it's really destructive. It's really, really not helpful, that focus. If you are worried about the climate emergency, as you should be, you, what we need to do, our only way out of this absolute apocalyptic catastrophe is through collective, whole society, whole system change. It needs to be, you need to build the movement and build awareness of the climate emergency. Focusing just, yeah, the concept of the carbon footprint was introduced by Shell. It is, it is a individual blaming approach that lets the systems and the people that run them off the hook. Mm. So, so I think it is very important for people who are in emergency mode to think really um, deliberately about how they're going to not not just take action, but take effective action. And in in facing the climate emergency, how to transform yourself with climate truth, my book, which is, you know, it's a self-help book for helping people do just that, uh, turn, feel their pain and turn it into action. So in step five of the book, I, I really try to take people through a lot of different considerations about what the movement needs and where they might fit in. Uh, because it's it's a complicated question. I mean, what, what you should do in the climate emergency movement is about as complicated and personal as choosing a career. So there's no one way, but it is, if you want to be in emergency mode, you have to find your way to plug in. And then, so circling back to your original question about how to control your and, and deal with your physiological reaction and emotional reaction to all of this emergency, the answer is action, 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 action. And because it, and, and, and also I guess like working out, mm. <laughs> get, get, you know, some physical disc discharge of that, but it's, yeah, I mean it's it's the only answer, honestly. Getting get joining the climate emergency movement and just deciding, okay, I'm going to do everything I can to protect humanity and the living world. I I, I think that's where this journey has got to go. Right. I think it's really powerful what you just said in terms of how we really have to plug into the movement and find our place within this movement rather than hyper fixating on really individualistic things like our individual carbon footprint, because that leads us to focus on pointing our fingers at one another rather than collectively pointing upwards at the big guys that are kind of holding us in place and trying to hold on to this status quo. So right now we're seeing more and more governments and organizations rightfully declaring emergency mode. But the thing is that if the declaration is where it ends, that won't get us to where we need to go. So I'm wondering, I know you guys laid out a climate emergency plan. What does that path 
forward actually look like, starting with this recognition that we need to mobilize our global community into emergency? Right. So they're they're declaring generally climate emergencies and sometimes climate and ecological emergency or biodiversity emergency. And right, it's a statement of intent and commitment. Uh, generally, every every government does it differently, but generally speaking, it's a it's a resolution, a, a non-binding resolution that that the government passes. And which is sometimes, but not always, followed up with excellent action. Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is my hometown, actually, declared a climate emergency and followed it up with a billion-dollar climate plan for zero emissions in that city by 2030. Now, that is still just a plan, and, you know, and it's not perfect, but it's, I mean, Wow. Ann Arbor, Michigan is a small city with about 100,000 people. And that, you know, zero emissions by 2030, that's what we're going for. That's the climate target. So that that is a terrific example. Another good example of what came after the, uh, these declarations was that um, Berkeley, California passed a climate emergency declaration and then banned gas hookups in new construction. And then this uh, ban was passed by about 20 other cities, mainly in California, but also in uh, Massachusetts. And hopefully it'll go farther and farther and farther. But so, yeah, so again, new construct, newly constructed buildings and homes will have to be all electric. No gas heating, no gas appliances. This is really cool. This is, and and we've seen like uh, energy industry, oil industry, fossil fuel industry, paper or like response to this and they're like whoa where did this come from this is this is a new <laughs> a new situation so so th- these are just examples of ways that the climate emergency declarations are like unlocking new strategies and and a new scale in the case of Ann Arbor for transformative change of course i wish they would do so much more than even what they're doing i i mean and and that goes for I think every single government that's declared a climate emergency mm. is that we, I mean, it's, it's like with the, with the climate, you, it's almost like you can't say it strongly enough. What, so it's like, what, what, what should a government do after declaring a climate emergency? Everything <laughs> they should, they should, you know, start out by like holding you know, a week long or something emergency meeting for all staff and or whatever. I, I mean, like there's a huge amount of education and like reorientation that we have to do and planning. But yeah, it's huge. And, 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 and then educating the public and bringing the public along. That's another that's another good thing that's come out of some of these emergency declarations is um, like community engagement and planning processes in terms of how we're going to get to zero emissions. So I, let me just uh, put a plug in for um, if you are interested in bringing a climate emergency declaration and then follow on campaign because of, as uh, we we're, because we don't stop there, 
We don't stop with an emergency declaration. So if you'd like to join that, you can go to theclimatemobilization.org and we work with individuals and especially um, like local organizations that want to, that, that already exist and want to take, take on this strategy. Beautiful. And I would love to end on some easy calls to action. So certainly our listeners should go join in on what you guys are working on. But what else do you suggest they can do to best support these declarations to be made and then turn into actual action? And then also, I know your book also shares some questions of self-reflection for your readers. Would you mind also leaving our listener with some questions to contemplate on at their own time as well? So at theclimatemobilization.org, you can sign up to organize your city or potentially volunteer your skills. Of course, you can donate financially, always critical to our operations. Um, Sign up for a monthly donation is great. And then great, great question. Great way to wrap up the interview is some questions for reflection from the book. All right. So I would say, have you grieved the climate emergency and what has that process been like for you? Do you feel comfortable? Is it possible for you to imagine a heroic version of yourself who is focused on the mission of protecting all life? And finally, Who can you talk to about the climate emergency this week? Get out there and have your first conversation if you haven't already. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much. So it's again the climatemobilization.org to stay updated on their nonprofit's work. And also be sure to check out her book, Facing the Climate Emergency at facingtheclimateemergency.com. You can also follow Margaret on Twitter at Climate Psych and at Mobilize Climate, Facebook at The Climate Mobilization, and Instagram at Climate Mobilization. All of this will be linked in our show notes that you can find at greendreamer.com. Margaret, thank you so much for being here with us today and for sharing your wealth of wisdom and your story and insights. What final words of wisdom can you leave us with as Green Dreamers? Together, we can we can change the world. Let's 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 get busy. You were listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, I would love to have your direct support on Patreon at greendreamer.com support so that I can keep this independent show going and accessible for everyone. Patreon is where our guests' final five tips, personal mantras, and additional suggested readings will be shared from now on, alongside some bonus content and sometimes author book giveaways as well. So if you're able to join starting from $2 per month. Again, it's greendreamer.com slash support. Today's song feature is Yarrow by Kim Anderson. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate you so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. The grass beneath the trees is the first autumn leaves I feel